What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What I do here is a daily live stream, and I put it out in podcast form. If you want to take part in the live streams, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, or better yet, go to the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Also, check out the website bitcoinandmarkets.com. Sign up for the free tier, get notified of all my content, get a free weekly newsletter. And there you can also become a full member and support me for $5 a month and support this unique perspective in Bitcoin. So I want to thank everyone that supports over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. If you're new, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Subscribe, like, share, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Okay, let's get into today's show. This is the first big live stream I'm doing with this new software. This is uh, going out over YouTube, Twitter, and Telegram. So welcome everybody to the stream. Let me make sure we got Telegram hooked up. It's a little bit different here. Counting down for Telegram. Telegram is my home base for you guys that don't know. And what I'm going to do is actually, all right. So yeah, Twitter, uh, sorry, uh, Telegram is my home base for you guys that don't know. Check out t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Uh, the new YouTube channel, because YouTube likes to terminate channels, is BTC Market Update. BTC Market Update. I will link to that here shortly so everybody can get in on that. Uh, so I'll be live streaming there, live streaming to Telegram and to Twitter so welcome, welcome. What I do here is I provide a contrarian take. All right, I've been in Bitcoin for a long time. Uh, I think 2012, 13-ish uh, is when I really started paying attention to Bitcoin. So I've been around for a while. And I started this podcast back in 2016, you know, hit the gate running, pretty successful. And then uh, every bear market, it gets really, really slow. But anyway, I do these uh, daily live streams. I've been doing them for a couple months now, and I th it's growing my reach, and I want to continue to grow my reach because I think that my content is valuable in the way that it's contrarian, all right? it's I have a background in economics with a degree. I have a business degree. I had uh, military experience for 10 years where I worked with uh, uh, on some intelligence side things uh, with a top secret clearance. So I have a different kind of unique perspective of this. Plus, I've been in Bitcoin for so long and seen so many of these cycles. So um, I've come from the sound money side, gold bug, Bitcoiner, now kind of uh, skeptic, maybe Bitcoin realist. Uh, what? Uh, how else would I describe myself? Just a contrarian in general. So I think that we're stuck in a deflationary trap, um, a debt trap global debt trap and the the solution to this deflationary debt trap is bitcoin is changing the money so if you listen to my stuff you'll get a real good view of that over a few shows but anyway i think my my perspective is important because there's a lot of people in the alternative macro space and bitcoin and in gold and you know whatever uh, out there even in the the mainstream financial press, people kind of understand those points of view, but they don't quite get the new age contrarian. I call it almost a neo-Austrian view. And that's what I think I represent is this contrarian neo-Austrian view. And 
so I think that's at least important to have in the back of your mind to understand this different point of view. So I, I'm not saying I'm 100% correct at, uh, at everything. I'm trying to figure this stuff out and make connections, connect dots and learn more and more than I, uh, as everybody is trying to do. Uh, but I think it's a very valuable position because nobody else is really talking about this. Even people in the same school, maybe I would put Jeff Schneider in a very similar school to myself, maybe Tom Luongo uh, in a very similar type of school, but we have vast differences in how we see Bitcoin and how we see uh, the traditional system right now. So anyway, it's, it's just an important perspective. So thank you guys for joining me. Hope you guys like, subscribe, whatever, wherever you're listening to this. Oh, and I forgot, this also goes on in a podcast app. So the next day I usually cut down the audio, put some bumpers on it and send it out in the podcast app. So uh, check out Bitcoin and markets in any podcast app and you'll, you should be able to find it. Um, all right, so let's get into today's topics. First up is going to be just the Bitcoin price. This is a pretty interesting chart. I have my little rocket. Actually, I probably should make that a different color, not a red rocket. Okay, that's my little rocket over here. And uh, what's interesting about right now is let me throw in the moving averages. So this, these are the, this is the 50 and the 200 day average. And you can see, uh, we've tested this 50 day moving average quite a few times. This is kind of, it, it's considered, uh, people might call it the 50 yard line uh, in football. You know, if you're in bullish territory or bearish territory, and we've tried to break out of this multiple times, uh, over the last couple weeks, and it hasn't been able to do that. So we'll see if today does that uh, sitting right now just under 17,000 at 16,700. All right, what, what are some other macro charts? Because this is Bitcoin, macro, geopolitics, all this stuff combined. Let's take a look at the dollar. And I don't want to reinvent the wheel or, or uh, I guess, beat a dead horse because I talk about the dollar all the time. But uh, if you zoom out on the dollar, okay, this is a, this is a quarterly quarterly chart now here. First off, we've been higher, okay? If you go back into the 80s, we were all the way up, all-time high, 165 on the DXY. Of course, that was before the euro. That's when there was all of the other currencies, you know, like the mark, the franc, the lira uh, in, in, um, in Europe there that all combined into the euro. So that is different than the DXY now. But what they did to the calculation of the DXY was they added all of those together, all of those old European currencies that were kind of massive currencies at the time, right? And they added them into the euro. So the, the DXY is heavily weighted towards the euro. And then there's, I think, about 14% for the yen and about 5% for the pound, something like that. Uh, but it's heavily weighted. And importantly, there is no Mexican peso, Canadian dollar. I don't think there's Canadian dollar in DXY. It might be a tiny, tiny percentage. Uh, and there's no Chinese yuan, which is very important. So I also look at the broad dollar index. Uh, I do have that. Let's pull that up here. Let's see if I can bring that up. So this is the broad weighted dollar. And I'll, I'll go back down to the um, to the weekly chart. And you can see that's also coming down. This lagged the DXY going up, 
in the last couple of years, and it is coming down pretty quickly. Now, the way I look at this is a strong dollar means there's there's stress out there. There's collateral stress. There's dollar stress. Um, but then you get to a acute phase where people default. There's some sort of crisis. Maybe you could signify this by the gilt market in the UK kind of blowing up. Um, there was some acute crisis. And now with the dollar uh, weakening against all these other currencies, at least a basket of currencies, that it symbolizes the stress being relieved. So that's how I look at that. Uh, but let's go back to the DXY and zoom out. And my, my opinion is things fundamentally changed around the great financial crisis. So down in this zone is where things change. And you can see this is kind of, I mean, it is another, it's a, it's a triangle pattern, but it's also a kind of a range. There's this range down here that we formed uh, all the way until 2014 when we broke out to a higher range. And then it was range bound here as well. And now we are breaking out to a new higher range. And that's kind of what I'm looking at. These are stair step stair steps up. And as in the end phase of a credit bubble, as the currency, because everyone, you know, needs to scramble to get hold of the currency to pay down their debts. Uh, so there's a scramble for cash, not only as a safe haven play, but also just to pay their damn debts off. And so the, the this will stair step higher uh, as the kind of end of the slow deflationary grind of the dollar intensifies. This will stair step up. That's my theory. Uh, it's kind of worked out so far. I was the only one talking about a strong dollar back in 2018, 2019, uh, even in 2020, when all of the COVID stuff, all the COVID stimulus and all that hit, I was still talking strong dollar. It fell right from about 100 to down to about 90. And people are like, oh, the dollar is going to collapse. And I stuck with my strong dollar thesis. And of course, then we had a rally up to 114. So um, I, th this is the theory that I'm working on with the dollar. Okay, let's continue with these charts here. Let's take a look at the 10-year. And let's get off of that. Let's go to the daily. I didn't prepare these charts, as you can see. <laughs> There's all these different uh, labels here. Let's hide these. Hide, 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 hide. Okay. Um, kind of looked like it was going to break up, but it didn't. Now let's add in here the, this is the Fed funds range. And look at that. I mean, it's just below the Fed funds range. It's falling again this week. The opening on the new year, it is now falling once again. Uh, we have a couple different data points out of Europe, which we'll talk about the German CPI here in a second. Um, just not looking good, right? So the economy is sliding into somewhat of a recession here, and the long bonds are dropping. Um, the Fed is not in control of interest rates. I mean, if they were, the 10-year would be above the Fed funds range, but it is not. Uh, I don't even think the two-year is. Let's take a look at the two-year real quick uh, because I've been watching that as well. Okay, it's right inside of the Fed funds range. So we'll see how this develops, but uh, very interesting. Okay, let's get back to some more macro charts and let's take a look at the oil market. Uh, of course, I have been a bear on oil 
this whole time, maybe going before COVID, because before COVID, I started like looking into the investment thesis for Tesla. And I thought it was very interesting what they wanted to do with tunnels and some other things. So uh, I, I saw like kind of a, a peak in oil demand. I started forming that thesis probably back in 2018, 2019 into COVID. And then of course we hit zero. Let's zoom out here and see where the oil price hit down here at zero. So anyway, the thesis has not changed. We, we've hit pretty much peak demand, at least for the time being, the foreseeable future. The, the globe is heading into a global recession. I think people are vastly underestimating what's going on with China and vastly. I mean, the collapse that's going to happen in China and the effect on the world is going to be just chaotic. Okay. The one thing that I think is not scary, but concerning about the Chinese collapse is that Xi could start some sort of war because he wants to retain power, um, to consolidate power, perhaps is a better term. So he wants to consolidate power and maintain power. And so they start a war. This is a common tactic throughout history. And so if the Chinese, if the CCP is having problems, which I think they will, the, the problems they're having right now are vastly underestimated. And this, this coming year, 2023 and 2024, it's, it's going to be really bad for the Chinese economy. And so in that situation, it wouldn't surprise me if they started some sort of war. Now, would they go into Taiwan? I don't think so. I think that the U.S. See, this is when we're getting into the geopolitics of this stuff and where my military background kind of comes into play. So they don't have the military capability to invade Taiwan. They just do not have that right now. Uh, they don't have the economic capability to be cut off from the Straits of Malacca to be cut off of the South China Sea. Yeah, they can control about 300 miles from their coastline, but they cannot, they do not have a blue water capability at all, really. I mean, just have one carrier battle group from the US would take care of all that stuff from uh, China, any sort of blue water capability that they have. So they don't have the military ability really to do that. And I think what the US has done over the last year, they've done it kind of sloppily, Right with Nancy Pelosi going over there, with other um, talk with the Chinese government that ended up being politically unpopular, and they, the Chinese government got um, swapped or the, the controlling party lost to uh, the old party over there in Taiwan. So that's more China friendly, and so, but the U.S. was setting the pieces up to say you will not be able to go this direction. But now China, as they are collapsing economically, where are they going to go to start a war if they can't go to Taiwan and they can't go to Korea and they can't go, probably not go to Vietnam. They could always try Vietnam again. That hasn't been successful for anybody in history, uh, but they could go into Afghanistan. I've read on the, the show a couple times about um, the recent attacks. There have been a lot of attacks on Chinese nationals in Kabul and around Afghanistan because it, they're seen as coming in and buying up interests. And so the Taliban and others don't like that. So they have actually been 
physically attacked. They've been there's been bombings, uh, there's been shootouts on Chinese nationals in Afghanistan. So it's not easy for them to do that. So maybe they won't do that. Maybe they'll go into some other place. But look, they're allied with Russia right now. Maybe they'll join some sort of Ukraine effort. Maybe they'll put a couple units into Ukraine at the request of Russia or something like that. But long term, this Russia-China alliance won't last because they are land powers in Asia and they don't have naval capability. So they have to fight each other if, you know, contest uh, over Central Asia for territory. So long term, we're talking a decade from now, they're just going to be back at each other's throats again. The alliance will not last all that long. It's not like they're, like Zoltan Poznar says, that they're forming some new, brand new, uh, awesome alliance against the West and against the U.S. That's not going to happen because they're traditional, natural enemies, and they will revert back to that eventually. And if China has to start some sort of conflict for national for nationalism and for support of the CCP, most likely they're going west, and that's not going to be popular with Russia. So anyway, we got onto a long, drawn-out thing, but you can see the price of oil here is collapsing again today down to 73. I'm surprised it didn't get up to 90s. I was saying, uh, you know, back middle, end of December that I could see it getting up to the 90s again. That wouldn't surprise me. But uh, this is, I mean, it's just weak. It's weak oil demand. All You can't put it any other way. It's just weak oil demand. Okay, what else do we have? Let's take a look at stocks here real quick. This is S&P 500. I've showed this chart many times, but uh, we can see it's trying to break upwards a little bit. But really, it's been struggling. So we'll see if it can meet up with this trend line coming down here in the middle of January. But I'm overall, I'm fairly, a lot of people are talking about recession, recession, recession. I think that 2022 was where most of the bear market was located. And obviously it's one of the worst years on record, perhaps the worst year on record for stocks and bonds, the 60-40 portfolio. So I think we're going to have a less bad year, at least in 2023, if not a full-out bullish year. I think we will have a bullish year in stocks and Bitcoin and bonds. That's my opinion. So, okay, that's it for charts. Let's go on to some of the new articles here I have, just headlines for you guys. This is from the U.S. ISM manufacturing contracts for second month. Prices paid and new orders plunge. Showing the final PMI print for December yesterday, confirming the manufacturing side of the U.S. economy is at its weakest since the COVID lockdown crisis. ISM reports this morning that weakness with a worse than expected 48.4 print down from 49.0 last month. Uh, this is the ninth straight decline in ISM manufacturing the longest stretch of declines since 74 and 75. It's not as bad as some of the numbers we're seeing out of China, though. Um, we're seeing massive contractions. And even nominally, we're seeing massive contractions out of China, uh, both on their, you know, the manufacturing surveys, but also their um, import-export numbers 
massive, massive contractions. And the U.S. is contracting, yes, 48.4, but it's not the 42 that we saw out of the, the composite Chinese PMI, 42. That's a much bigger contraction. Um, there's all sorts of numbers also out of Germany, which um, I don't have on the, you know, at the, at the ready here, uh, but we will be talking about some German inflation numbers here in a minute. But the German economy, nominally, it looks okay. But if you look at volumes, like export volumes, import volumes into Germany, 2022 was miserable. It was absolutely miserable. So uh, really bad numbers. Least bad, though, 48.4 in the United States. Let's continue reading. Under the hood, it was mixed with employment picking up modestly while prices paid and new orders plunged to covid lows uh prices paid and new orders plunged so those are <laughs> inflation or cpi right or pce i guess it would be the more important one uh, and new orders that's forward looking right future looking uh inventories are still extremely high uh inventory recession is where you know, you add to your inventory and then you can't get rid of your inventory. And so you mark down your prices and you try to, you don't order new things. You try to liquidate your inventory. And so this is, you know, ebb and flow in the economy. The pendulum swings back and forth. And right now we're still trying to get out from this glut of inventory. So new orders are um, not doing too well. Okay. As S&P's S&P Global's Cyan Jones noted yesterday, quote, growing uncertainty and tumbling demand suggest challenges for manufacturers will roll over into the new year. Go figure. This is uh, some really smart, well-paid Cyan Jones quoting the obvious here. Okay. Globally, JP Morgan's global manufacturing PMI fell to a 30-month low of 48.6 in December and remained below the neutral mark of 50 for the fourth straight month. Fourth straight month. Now, let's put this back into perspective of peak oil demand. 2019, I believe it was 102 million barrels per day. That's what 2019 was. We're still at 99 million barrels. Might, might have gone up to 100 million barrels per day, but we're below the 2019 high by a significant amount, you know, 2%. And now we are, the global PMI fell to a 30-month low, right? How many years is 30 months? Two and a half? It's a two and a half year low, below 50 for the fourth straight month. That, that demand for energy, the demand for oil is falling. So the price of oil will continue to slide. There's not much that can stop it at this point. I mean, except maybe the... OPEC plus countries voluntarily or voluntarily um, pulling back on their production. Maybe that's been over and over now. I think in 2022, they decreased their forecast demand by uh, five times and they decreased their quota three times. So they're going to probably continue that in 2023. So with all of this, the way that the you know markets are fluid and complex and we can't really look forward too far and say this is actually going to happen but 
I would say oil will find a range. It will find a bottom. There will be some market destruction down there, you know, at the bottom, some suppliers will get hacked off or closed down or whatever. And then we'll rise in price a little bit and we'll find a new range for the next few years in oil. And whether that's going to be 60 to 90, that could be a good range, maybe 60 to 80. I don't know, but uh, that's what I'm looking at for oil. And this PMI kind of ties into that. Only seven of 29 nations for which December data is, avail is available had a PMI reading in expansion territory. Now get these countries, India, Russia, Mexico, Colombia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Australia. So this one surprised me, Australia. Um, this one surprises me, but Mexico definitely does not surprise me. Colombia does not surprise me. Um, Indonesia does not surprise me. So a lot of these places are very interesting. And anyway, 29 out of, only 7 out of 29 have expansion in their PMIs. The US, UK, and Brazil were the largest nations ranking towards the lower reaches of the PMI league. All right. Very interesting. Let's go on to the next story. I thought, saw this headline. I thought it was kind of interesting, kind of funny. Uh, Poland furious after Germany rejects Polish government's $1.3 trillion World War II reparations claim with one sentence response. Poland's deputy foreign minister says the matter of World War II reparations is far from closed. The Polish government is expressing anger after Germany Oh, I'm not sharing the right tab. One second. There we go. So this is the story. And we're down here. Polish government is expressing anger after Germany responded to demands for World War II reparations with a one-sentence answer, which included no substantive or legal arguments. Poland's deputy foreign minister, somebody, some hard name to pronounce, has described the curt response as disrespectful to the Polish government and the Polish people. To dismiss that with just one sentence means that all assurances about excellent German-Polish relations are false. Boom. And just the other day, didn't uh, it was Hungary and Maloney and Poland that got together and said, they're going to remake Europe. This is not a coalition of states. This is a coalition of nation states. And we're nations first. Right. So that is this EU problem that there is getting worse. It's getting worse. Populism is rearing its head all over the world. And this is just uh, very interesting to me. Okay. Germany. Let's uh, check here what we're, how we're doing here on the stream. I think we're doing all right. Okay. This is the German inflation numbers. So it, uh, these came out. I think yesterday, huge, huge downside here, downside miss on the German quote unquote inflation numbers, right? It's CPI, it's prices. Uh, but this is kind of looking at what the U.S. is uh, going to get here in December numbers as well. I think they're, they could be negative. The CPI month over month for the U.S. could be negative. Um, but let's let's take a look at this story, and I just want to point out a few things. So, German inflation drops more than expected to nine point six percent. 
9.6%. Interesting. Okay. Sharp fall helped by energy subsidies provides some relief for the ECB in its fight against price rises. German inflation slowed more than expected in December, sliding into single digits for the first time since the summer and providing some relief for the European Central Bank in its battle to control price rises. Consumer price inflation dropped to 9.6% in the year to December. Well, well down from the 11.3% registered the previous month after Berlin implemented measures to shield consumers from high gas prices. The figure published by the country's Federal Statistical Agency on Tuesday was also lower than the 10.7% forecast by economists polled by Reuters. And you can see this chart is coming down. Amazing. But notice that nothing in this first section, 9.6, that sounds still very high, right? That sounds like very high CPI. I didn't hear anything about month over month. I want to know what's going on, what went on in December. Okay. I don't want to hear about what happened before the brick wall. I don't want to know how fast the car was going before it hit the brick wall. I want to know the outcome of it hitting the brick wall. And nothing talks about month over month in here. Let's let's do a quick search for month. Okay. Previous month is the first one. And then the second one is previous month. Okay. But no month over month. I read through this. There's no mention in the Financial Times story and really any mainstream story here. One second. My boy put my phone across the room. Thank you, buddy. Okay. Um, so no, no mention in this story or in any of the mainstream media of the month over month number. Just the year over year. 9.6%. 9.6%. Now, why? Why would they do that? That's my question. Is why would they stick with the year over year? Because guess what the month over month shows? Let's take a look at the official German data. This is from De Statist. That's the German statistical website, whatever, the government website. And let's take a look. December. Negative 0.8% on previous month. Month over month. Negative 0.8%. Negative. And this harmonized index of consumer prices, don't know what this is about, but it is negative 1.2% month over month. Negative. Not 9.6. It's negative. They've hit peak, peak, peak uh, CPI. We've hit peak CPI. And if this is showing what's going on in December, I think we are going to have major, a big negative number, not just a negative 0.01, which we had earlier in July. It, it's going to be a negative 0.2, negative 0.3 for the CPI. CPI is going to come down dramatically. If you uh, annualize the last five months that we have, July through November, CPI was 2.4%. If you annualize it with a negative number coming up, it's going to be under 2%. Under 2% in the second half of 2022 on an annualized basis. 
this year over year stuff needs to go. It needs to stop. If you see people saying year over year, you need to be like, well, what happened? To, let's annualize the last couple months. What's, what is it? Hold on a second. Sorry, still getting over my cold, but I'm almost done. All right. That is the last one I have here. And let's go back and just share this tab. So that is the last one I have here, guys. This is my first experience streaming on YouTube and onto uh, Twitter video and onto Telegram. I hope it went okay. Usually at the end of this, I go in and I do a Q&A with my guys over on Telegram because that's my home base. But I'm still trying to figure out how to do that when I'm using Restream. Um so I'm not going to be able to do that today. But if you're listening to this anywhere, make sure you like and subscribe. And also check out the podcast version. Just search for Bitcoin and Markets in any podcast app. Uh, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter. And that is at BitcoinandMarkets.com, the, the homepage for all the stuff I do. So, uh, all right, guys. I hope you have a great day. And I will see you on the next one. Bye.